it's never too late to have a happy childhood. These are words that are expressed by this evening's guest named Dave Patnode. And when we think about those words, Dave, throughout the course of his time, had to consider what those words meant to him. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. And David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chuck. It's great being here. Um, To the listeners who may not know Dave, Dave lives on the West Coast in Seattle, Washington. And here we are in New York broadcasting this show from the studios at 77 WABC. I wanted to bring Dave on because Dave is an author, but he did something well in advance of becoming a well-published author that I think a lot of us can relate to. And if you put yourself in the mind of most New Yorkers, before you go to work, you sit on a bus, you sit on a train, or in some place that gives you time, time on your hands in advance of getting to work, and time on your hands when you return to work. And Dave, what I'd like to begin this show with is talk about the commute that you had to what you did and what you did during that commute. Well, I was uh, in the insurance business for a long time. I worked in the home office of an insurance company, life insurance company. And uh, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do for my life. It was one of those jobs you kind of settle for. Um, I had uh, been a uh, communications major in college, and I thought I'd be an advertising writer when I got out, but I took a job that I thought was going to be kind of temporary, and it turned out to be long-term. I had kids at home and a family, and uh, I thought this was something I'd have to stick with. But I also had this dream of being a writer, Um, and I didn't do much about it for a long time, but um, I started writing short stories uh, because I thought that was all I had time to do. And uh, one day I got another idea for a short story, and it turned into this big idea that I knew would have to be a book. And I looked at my schedule, and I didn't have a lot of time to write a book. But I did realize that I had an hour on the bus every day going back and forth to work. So I looked at that hour as an opportunity to to write that novel I had in my head. And uh, that's pretty much what happened. I sat on the back of the bus with a pad of paper and a pen and got to work. I, I managed to crank out maybe a page a day. At the end of a year, I had a, a first draft of a novel. And, and that was kind of the beginning. When you thought about in taking that time, here you are ready to go to work, and as soon as the bus arrived at the office, you close your laptop or whatever you were writing on, and you go to work. And you go to work in the service of whatever you were doing, and then you go back home and you were doing it again. What was going through your mind as you were heading to work, recognizing there's something else I'd rather be doing, and right now it's on that bus? How did you deal with that conflict? The conflict of the 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 two, the two yeah. things I was wanting to do. Yeah. Uh, it didn't feel so much like a conflict, I guess. It was, it was kind of a, an outlet for, for uh, my more artistic side. And, uh, you know, I had no idea if this would turn into something profitable for me. Uh, I'd, I'd heard enough writers talk that I knew that, you know, it was kind of a chancy game. But 
I had managed to get a few short stories published in magazines, so I thought there was uh, a possibility I could do that. Um, so I just looked at it as this was something I wanted to write, and I would try to get it published, um, but that wasn't necessarily a guarantee I knew, but um, it, was, it was something I just wanted to do. And as you were writing these, who were you writing for, yourself or someone else? That's a great question. Yeah, authors talk about that all the time. You're writing for yourself, you're writing for your audience. Right. Um, I I think with me, it was was both. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, but I was also imagining, you know, a young audience and and, uh, coming up with these these characters that I thought would connect with the reader, you know, because if if you're writing in a vacuum, then then I don't think you you uh, you really do a good job. You have to have your audience in mind. I've I've heard writers say, well, they just write for themselves, but I, I'm not sure that that's all the way true. Uh, so I, I think I was doing both. Well, it seems you started to write these books in advance of a very famous author who wrote a book called Harry Potter. And it was that book that really, I don't know if it revolutionized or initiated an entire band of teenagers and young readers about to read books in a world where we were afraid they stopped reading. Were you, was that, give us the timeline. Did, did you start to write well in advance of that? Uh, I can't remember when the first Harry Potter came out. I know my kids were um, elementary school, and I had started writing before that. Um, I think I started writing my first novel in the late 80s, and it, it was published in 93, and I don't think the the first Harry Potters came out for a few years after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I wasn't exactly inspired by Harry Potter, but I, I think it definitely got kids more interested in, write, in reading, which dragged a lot of the rest of us along, you know, it wasn't really competition. It was just kind of expanding the market. Yeah. Well, let me provide context to our listeners. Dave's books have been placed on young readers' lists in 18 different states. He has been honored by many different institutions, including the New York Public Library. And I myself have had the joy of reading two of his books, one of them called Fast Backwards and one of them called Thin Wood Walls. And there's something distinct about these books. Dave is a man who has written in the mind of a, or is an adult, who has written books in the minds of teenagers. How, how did you come to write and identify in the mind of a 15-year-old, even though you were many years away from being a teenager? Yeah, many. That's, that's the clue. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think uh, it's just... You know, I'm a certain age now, but I'm I'm also all the other ages I I was as I got here, and it's just kind of going back and remembering those very vivid uh, experiences you've had as a kid, because those are the ones that, that really stick with you. I think after you get to be an adult, things tend to blur, but all those fresh experiences you have when you're, you know, a, a preteen or a teenager, they they tend to stick with you. You remember those. And so I, I wouldn't say it's easy to get in the, the head of those characters, but um, I don't 
don't think it's all that difficult. Uh, you just have to remember that you're writing for kids, and you know, don't don't talk down to them. You have to maintain that that uh, level of of being a kid. Uh, don't don't preach. Don't uh, uh, act like you've got all the answers. Uh, you you have, have to have those kids struggle. Just as you struggled when you were young. Well, I want to I want to continue on that line, but I want to talk sure. about y- your your struggles. And I think any author, and I'm an author myself, and I knew what it was like to sit down and start writing, and you don't know if it's any good, and you want to be sure that it all fits, and who am I writing it for? But I'd like to hear about your transition and what is ultimately a transformation for how you came to be an author. How did you know you could do this? And, 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 and walk us through the publishing cycle and all of the no's you received along the way. Well, for me, it wasn't really a giant leap. I'd, I'd uh, had some stories published in magazines. I had, uh, by the time I left the day job, I'd had three books and another, three books published and another one under contract. And I had some experience uh, with, um, looking at my income, uh, there was there was an aspect of writing for kids that I didn't really know about when I started, and that was school visits. Uh, schools will pay you to come out and talk to their kids, um, work work with them in workshops, um, have assemblies and that kind of stuff. So I I had I had an idea at least of what kind of income I could expect if I did make the big leap, and. Uh, so when I finally decided to do it, I wasn't completely stepping off a cliff. And my wife was kind enough to go back to work full-time just to give us an extra cushion. So it wasn't as scary as it might sound. Uh, I definitely would not have done it you know, after I signed that first book contract and got my $3,000 advance. It, you know, I wouldn't have been able to live much more uh, beyond a month on that. So... Um, I knew I had to wait around, uh, but I'm a pretty patient guy, and I went to work every day, and, and I just kind of said, well, maybe in a year or two or three I'll be able to, to make the transition to, to uh, something I really want to do. And I appreciate that, but when I look at your website, there is a bulleted point that states very loud and clear, and you state it in a very funny way, rejections rejections, bring them on. (laughs) I love that because one of the common themes in a climb to the top for every guest that we have had the honor to host, all talk about no rejections and all of these things on the path. When the rest of the world is saying no, how do you strengthen your resolve and try to get somebody to yes? Why did you write that bullet point and what did that mean to you? Well, I think think rejections, I've heard other people say this, uh, are are just kind of a another step on the way to getting somebody to say yes. So, and I'm still getting rejections. You know, it's, it's not like you, you publish books and all of a sudden everybody comes to your door. But it's just part of the business. And I and I learned that fairly early. I I got all kinds of rejections on my uh, short stories, and then uh, when my first novel started, when I started sending it out. Um, I got one rejection after another, and finally I started sending out to more people at a time, and I was lucky enough to get somebody to say yes. Well, what did you do in in the midst of of 
potentially being discouraged. How did you continue? And this is what I want to leave the listeners with, because many have a fear of doing what you did for fear of rejection, for fear of judgment, and for fear of just making the mistakes that they, that they failed. Just some advice to the listeners. How do you strengthen that resolve when the rest of the world is telling you, no, we're not interested? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. But, you know, I, I, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that I started running about the time I started writing. And uh, I learned in running that it's, it's mostly just putting one foot in front of the other. If you're running a marathon, I don't know how many steps that is, but you just keep telling yourself, well, I'm going to keep going because I don't want to quit. And, um, you know, when you get those no's flowing in, you know that there are a lot of people out there that, that uh, might say yes. And there's all kinds of stories about famous authors that have been rejected. I think Stephen King has had at one point his whole room papered with rejection letters. Um, J.K. Rowling got rejected a number of times. I think Dr. Seuss... Uh, he had 28 rejections or something like that. So I, I think those kind of stories inspire writers. You know, it's, it's just you know, the, another step in the, in the whole process. Indeed. Well, they inspire writers. They inspire runners. We speak here in, in a climb to the top. We speak in the mountain climbing metaphor that everything is one step at a time. And we had a fellow mountaineer come in, talk about the most important step is your next one. And then after that, your most important step is the next one. And through a culmination of steps, before you know it, you, uh, you, you've got a novel. Yeah. You are listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. My name is Chuck Garcia, and our guest this evening is Dave Patnob. Dave, one other thing, and something that I, when I've read your books, and then I was preparing for this sh- show, something came to me from your website that was in my mind, and I wonder if you can expand on this. And it's three words. Read write, revise. And I think that's a metaphor for anybody that does anything for a living. Talk about how you develop that sense both as an author and the advice you can give to anyone who is doing something else, how that advice applies. Well, when I first started out, I I wanted to to do the read and the write part, but the the revision part. Yeah, right. Who wants to revise? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I wanted to be perfect the first time and nobody could mess with it. (laughs) all this kind of stuff, but uh, I learned that the revision part is, is the, the part that, that's really going to make the difference. I mean, if you're not, if you're not willing to revise, you're, I don't know anybody that, that writes books and doesn't revise and gets published. Um, so I, I came to learn that it was the most important part. And actually now I, I enjoy that part of it more than I do the the writing from scratch part, uh, but the business is really competitive, you know. And if you don't, if you don't have a great first page and the first chapter, uh, it's you know it's not your manuscript's not even going to get read. So you pretty much have to make it perfect. Well, here's why I ask: is one of the challenges, you know, I teach college, and one of the challenges in teaching undergraduates and graduate students is. There, there's, they tick the box for intelligence, and we teach them emotional intelligence. But one of the things that companies continually ask me to do is to help the millennials and the Gen Zs to become more adaptable because they find that when it comes to the giving and the receiving of feedback, 
it just not landing as well because they feel that this generation isn't growing as, as adaptable because some things are very easy. But when you are a writer, work through the process of those revisions and someone, be it the editor or others, how it is you accept that feedback in the service of making a better book. Yeah, that's the hard part. I, I think the first the first time I I got an editorial letter from my editor on my first book, it was almost <laughs> nightmarish. Right, you know, a lot of red. You know, you thought you, I thought I'd sent this perfect manuscript in there, and you know, I get this ten page editorial letter back with sticky notes on on every page of my manuscript because back in those days it was all on paper. Uh, but I just kept telling myself, we're both trying to make this book better. Uh, and, you know, I, I just had to kind of close up that letter and not look at it for a few days. And, but once I got it back out, I, I started sitting down, buckling down, and, and uh, trying to go along with most of what my editor was telling me. Uh, I didn't want it to be a fight. I wanted it to be a kind of a... A, uh, I guess, not exactly a co-author thing, but I wanted I wanted us to be able to work together. Yeah, uh, and, and I felt even my editor, his name is Peter Giannopoulos, and when I work with him, to call him an editor, I thought was just not giving him enough credit. It was a partnership. Right. You know, he he worked with me in a way that that I had to continually remind myself he is making the book better. And while I may not agree with it, he he was he was right ninety nine point nine percent of the time. But what I'd like you to do is talk about the interaction, and this is, a, this is a lesson to our listeners. We as the teachers, and we're all each other's teachers, but we give feedback. How do you accept the feedback in the spirit of that partnership? Well, it's not, not always easy, as, as I probably already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you've got your ideas about what you, you want your book to be. And, mm-hmm. um, at first, I was... I'm not not unwilling to go along with the suggestions, but it was just difficult for me because I was used to working on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just have to accept it. I, I think one of the things that helped me was being in a critique group um, you know, with four or five other authors, and, and we would critique each other's work, and you just kind of get used to other people not tearing you down but telling you, how it reads, because how it reads and how it writes are not always the same thing. Uh, so I think that that small kind of low-key experience of listening to other people talk about my work helped me when I actually got to the professional level and, and was working with a, a, a real quote-unquote editor. Um, I kept I just kept that goal in mind of, both of us want this book to be really good. So that, that made it a little bit easier. And, and how did you come to, for, for the budding writers out there, because I know many, there, there are a lot of people, I suspect, they may want to write a book, they don't get to it. But I have many, many students in my world who definitely have something to say and they want to write. I, uh, talk about the formation of that co-author group. How did it form? Why did it form? And did it work? been writing for um, I can't remember how many books I'd actually had published but once I quit the day job I got invited to join a group that had been 
working together for a while. And we were very compatible. We just kind of hit it off. We ended up staying together for 10 years or more, I think. Um, just uh, fairly low-key. We would, you know, everybody kind of had their own way that they wanted to get feedback. Some people finished the whole novel and just dropped it on us uh, and gave us a month or so to, to get back to them. Some people wanted us to, to look at their stuff in smaller chunks, a chapter or two at a time. But for me, I was one of the ones I wanted to get through a couple of drafts of the of the story and and give it to them as a uh, a whole because I thought well it's hard to it's hard to analyze a, a piece of a story without knowing where the story is going. So that that worked really well for me. They were a, a great group and and uh, we got along and we published a lot of books together over the years. And do you recommend not just for the writers but for any professionals that are trying to do something that is in an individual effort as writing is, although it becomes more collaborative, is that a path for any of those budding authors out there that you would recommend? Is a critique group yeah. a good path? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'd recommend it. You just have to, to make sure you've got the kind of group that's going to be helpful. Uh, you don't want people that are going to be picking on your stuff just because they feel like it. Yeah, you have to have some faith in in who you're working with, uh, and it's helpful if you've got somebody who's got some real experience as a writer, mm-hmm. maybe even a you know a published writer, uh, because they can help you along the way if if you haven't been published yet. Um, but I don't think it'll take you very long once you once you get into a group or once you start working with with even just one more individual to find out if this is somebody that you feel compatible with. Um, I was I was lucky. We had we had some really good people people that could really analyze what you've written and give you some good feedback and be fairly gentle about it, but not too gentle. Yeah, understood. And. And let, let me speak of the genre then of the, the of the young readers, the awards that you've received, and the books that you continue to write. Did you write one book for a young reader, and based upon its success, you kept that genre, or have you mixed up? Because I haven't read all your books. The different genres of books that you, as a writer, are associated with. They've all been for young readers. I I actually tried to write a an adult mystery one time, and I did write, but. My agent tried as hard as she did to, uh, to try to get a, a publisher for it. Uh, wasn't successful. So that one's sitting on the shelf, an electronic shelf anyway. Yeah, but so um, you're, 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 it sounds like then you're, you're staying in your lane just based upon yeah, the success. It's what you're good at. And no, I haven't, haven't completely given up on that. Uh, it's, it's one of those that I spent a lot of time on. I wouldn't mind getting back to it and seeing if I could do something with it. Yeah. And and now, how, how much, on any given day, how much time do you devote to writing? It depends on the day. You know, if I can find a lot of distractions, then I don't spend time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, find, find a reason not to write. <laughs> yeah. You know, somewhere, somewhere around two to four hours, possibly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Writing-related stuff. I find if I spend more than that, I, I kind of burn myself out. But yeah, um, 
I, uh, in November, I did this thing called NaNoWriMo, which is write a novel in a month. <laughs> right. Write a novel in a month. How did so, that, that work out? It, it actually, uh, it, it was the third time I'd tried it, and I got my 50,000 words in. So You got 50,000 words in a month? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I thought so. I don't know if the words are any good. But, <laughs> but you did it. I, I continued on after that, and uh, I think I told you that yesterday I was kind of at a little retreat uh, for a few days, and I finished finished up that first draft of that book, which was uh, pretty gratifying. Now I've got to go back and see if there's anything worth salvaging. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, you know, your story, Dave, is, is a metaphor, I think, not just for those that commute to work, not just for those that decide I'm going to do something else. It's really a story of what's in somebody's mind that they may be fearful about pulling the trigger to do the thing they love. So I'm going to ask in, in, in our time remaining, which is about two minutes, we always ask ourselves, what do we want our listeners to think? What do we want them to feel? And what do we want them to do based upon any wisdom that you can impart? So let, let's just take that one at a time before we conclude. Dave, for those that are sitting on the bus or the train and are contemplating a career change, what do you want them to think? Well, I, I think, you know, sometimes we have to kind of get along by going along. Um, but that's not always the case. And, and if you're unhappy with your job or even just kind of too comfortable with your job and you want to do something else, I think there are, there are ways you can do that. And, you know, just look around, see what you really want to do, see what's out there. Um, but don't, don't jump from, you know, something fairly comfortable to, to completely uncomfortable. Uh, I, I took my time doing it. Right. I, I was pretty patient. Yeah, your transformation happened. You 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 guided it. It was it didn't happen in one big event. It it happened over time where you had the ability to slide away from this insurance company job to ultimately becoming a full time writer. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And what do you want? Right, in one step at a time, indeed. And what do you want them to feel as they are a bundle of emotions about making these transformations? What did you learn about how you felt about yours? Well, I, by the time I did it, I felt, I felt good. Uh, but I kind of laid some groundwork for it. And, you know, I had several books published, and um, I wasn't just stepping off a cliff. Um, so I felt good. My wife was very supportive, which was important. Yeah. And uh, uh, I continued to to write books and get them published and it was great getting out there and talking to kids about what I did. Yeah. Well, that gets into the do. Then then if somebody is going to make that career choice, whether it's an author or something else, you have a path. What do you recommend people do with that career change? What do I recommend they do? Yep. Well, I I think uh, just know know what you really want to do. I mean, before you before you step out there, um, you don't want to take on something else that you end up disliking. So I, I want them, I want everyone to, to uh, make sure they've, they've got something they really love that they're stepping into because it is a big change. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what worked for me. I mean, I really wanted to write. Uh, there wasn't wasn't anything else I wanted to do, including the job I had. Right. So stay stay singularly focused on what you love 
what you're yeah. good at and what can get you paid. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I think there's a lot of research involved. It's it's kind of a um, emotional thing, but it's also it also has to be kind of practical. Yeah. Um, you know, you have, you have to decide if this is this thing, this thing that you love is, is something you can do for a living. Right. No, I know everybody goes through that. Well, Dave, thank thank you very much for your time. You have listened to Dave Patnode on a climb to the top. Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. And Dave, we are grateful for your time, your insight, and your wisdom. And we wish you well and continued success in, in all of the wonderful books that are ahead of you. Thanks, Chuck. It's been great being here. You bet. Good night. Good night. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.